0: Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience.
1: Dr. Clint Pierman, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Hey,
0: Paul, thank you for having me. I am excited to be on your show. I've been listening to some of your other shows, and I'm thinking, wow, you got me on your show? So I am honored <laughs> and, uh, and grateful uh, that
1: someone thought I would be a great guest on your show. <laughs> well, hey, the fact that you uh, spent a really long time in the Marine Corps uh, gets you on my show, no problem.
0: <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And I didn't even know you knew that, Shuck. So you must have
1: Googled me to figure that out. I, I did a little Googling before oh, we... Uh, okay. All ahead. right, all right. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess you should mention you and I connected through Rich Dalton. How do you and Rich know each other?
0: Oh, that's right. Um, Rich is one of, so I run a Tai Chi education and, tra- well, I actually run a health and wellness education and training program that uses Tai Chi, the ancient martial arts of Tai Chi, turned, you know, it's been turned into a health and wellness model now um, to help people live their healthiest life. And Rich is one of my students. And what's interesting was, I I had, what was I doing? Oh yeah, I was looking for an indoor location to do a program for some senior students. What I mean by senior citizens. And I went into one of the martial arts studios to talk with them about using their location. And
1: Rich was in there getting hired as the manager. I thought that was so awesome. That is awesome. Well, tell me about Tai Chi. I don't know anything about Tai Chi.
0: Oh yeah. So I like to, If when people ask me that, I start with, well, it's an ancient martial arts, first and foremost. That's kind of confusing to people because many people see, you know, they may see people in the community or in the parks, or they may have even seen Tai Chi videos where people are doing this slow, rhythmic movement, looks like a choreographed dance. And they may have no idea... It was a martial arts. It began 400 years ago in yeah. in China as a martial arts. And then over the next ensuing uh, 400 years, people have realized this slow form of exercise, slow movement, which is integrated with another exercise called Qigong. Qigong now is, a form of traditional Chinese medicine. So Qigong, traditional Chinese medicine, Tai Chi, traditional martial arts, when they merged together, apparently somewhere along the line, it was discovered, wow, there are all of these health benefits from doing this slow movement. Now Hmm. the Chinese, they're so cool, 400, well actually, when we go back to 4,000 years, they realize this thing called qi. Now most people are familiar with that term, qi. And when you ask people, well, what is qi?" They're gonna give you some, some esoteric answer like it's this mysterious force in the universe that flows through the universe and powers everything in the universe. Well, that's absolutely right. But it was 4,000 years ago when it appears the Chinese came up with this idea and they did not know what we know today and what the Chinese understood was there are three types of qi. There's universal qi, qi that's in the universe. There's earth qi. And when most people talk about qi, they're talking about human qi. So they're talking about the energy that flows through your body. Now, the Chinese knew there was some there was something flowing through us that energizes us, but they didn't know what it was, so they called it qi. Brilliant! Now, four thousand years ago, we there are scientists that now believe that thing the Chinese were talking about, calling it chi, is probably bioelectricity. Uh, in other words, when the Western researchers went to studying this thing called chi, they have now kind of started thinking it's probably bioelectricity, because it does the same thing that Qi does. Now, Tai Chi came along after Qi Gong, and remember it was a martial arts, and started using the health-enhancing benefits of Qi Gong, turning Tai Chi into an extraordinary health-enhancing exercise. That has benefits from everything from mental health, physical health, uh, emotional health, and well being. In fact, I don't know if you saw when you looked me up. I, I actually, so my practice is a health and wellness program, my private practice, health and wellness program that uses Tai Chi to help people improve all facets of their life. And one of the things I do with that is I teach Tai Chi in a, in a medical, in a hospital. In the mental health department, working with patients with mental health illnesses or issues, depression, anxiety, stress related issues, trauma related issues, traumatic brain issue, uh, traumatic brain injury issues. And I use Tai Chi as an integrated component of the conventional mental health to help the patients get better. So when you ask what is Tai Chi, first, it's a martial arts, but most people today use it for its health benefits. And when I say health, there are four fundamental things. There's actually 10 I use in my model uh, called the Tai Chi enhanced style, but most people will understand the four fundamentals. One, active relaxation is, is, a, is, a, is stressed in Tai Chi. And learning how to actively relax your body by itself has a ton of health benefits. That was kind of discovered by Herbert Benson, a professor at Harvard University. He realized or he, he learned that something called the relaxation response could be, not could be, was the opposite of the stress response. So when we get stressed, we know what that is, pupils dialogue dilate, heart rate starts beating, blood pressure goes up and you kind of tense up because you're stressed over something. Well, Herbert Benson discovered there are things you can do to almost instantly relax yourself. And he coined it the relaxation response. Well, we teach that in Tai Chi. The second one is deep breathe So the, the active relaxation is kind of a psychological way to relax yourself. Then we add to that, Breathing deep and slow that physiologically relaxes your body. Then we add this slow movement, which is what most people see is that slow rhythmic movement, which compounds the active relaxation and the deep breathing, further relaxing your body. And then the final, and you can coin them A, B, C, D, A, active relaxation, B, breathe deep and slow, C control the movement, and then D, direct your focus, concentration, and attention to the noun. When you do those four things, here is what Tai Chi is. When you do those four things, Tai Chi noun becomes moving meditation. Oh. And there is a mountain of scientific research on the health benefits of just meditation. But most people can't sit still And meditate. Mm. So we make it cool. Tai Chi makes it cool by adding this movement to it. And hopefully that kind of explains what is Tai Chi. If someone asks you, just tell them first, it's a martial arts, but most people use it. To About 90% of people that do it today, they're using it for the health benefits.
1: uh, You explained that beautifully. I I love your answer. Yeah. And I just learned a ton right there. It's awesome. I love it. All right. So uh, can I call you Clint? Absolutely. And by nature, I am a teacher.
0: So when you flip my teacher switch, I go to teaching.
1: (laughs) Duly noted. So don't hesitate to say, "Okay, next topic. Let's go to something else. (laughs) All right. So uh, what part of the world are you from?
0: That's a great question. You know, I often joke with people now and I'll initially say I'm from Wakanda and they look at me all crazy and every now and then some people say oh really i didn't really wakanda i didn't even know that was a real country it's not it's a fictional movie made by marvel comics um actually from new well here's a great story it's kind of a crazy story when my daughter was in i believe it was the 6th or 7th grade she comes home from school one day dad did you know we are descendants from kings and queens? Yeah, I heard that story years ago. I'm not really sure about that. But dad, we had to do a genealogy test on our heritage in school. And now this is, my daughter is in her 40s. So this is years ago. We had to do this genealogy test and we learned that our the name pyramid kind of stems from kings and queens from Africa. Now, I kind of heard that, but I didn't think that she could figure that out. I heard this from rumors from my older family members and siblings. So so she said, how can I learn more? I said, well, go we'll call your, your aunt, my big sister. So that's the end. This had to be around 90, 91, 92, somewhere around there. No, 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 no. Around, yeah, 91, 92. Never hear another thing. 20-something years later, my granddaughter Grandpa, did you know we're from Africa? Well, yeah, but did you know we're descendants from kings and queens? What are you talking about? Your mama brought that up like when she was your age. So, yeah, but we had now then now they have Ancestry.com. My daughter, I don't know if she did or not, but now my granddaughter has Ancestry.com. And she apparently figured enough out to realize we are from Nigeria, Ethiopia. Ethiopia, and here's the really crazy part. This is going to mess you up. <laughs> so during the slave trade, some slave traders picked up two groups of slaves. One of the groups, according to the historical records, one of the groups were the descendants of Queen sheba and King Saul. Now, I have not confirmed that, but the rest of the story has kind of been confirmed. That slave ship left West Africa, headed to Virginia, stopped in Virginia to get resupplied, left Virginia going to South Carolina when it ran into a storm. Now this is in the historical records, watch this. Runs into a storm and gets shipwrecked in Bermuda. When it gets shipped, I know, I was like, what? When it gets shipwrecked in, now all of this is historical. You can see this in historical records. When it gets shipwrecked in Bermuda, the Bermuda authority, well, when the Bermuda authorities realized the cargo were slaves, Bermuda had, this was like in the 1700s, Bermuda had already outlawed slavery and they confiscate the ship until the constables come in the next day. When they come in, there were 70, four slaves on the ship. They, they let each, they gave each one of them the opportunity to get off the ship or stay on the ship. My descendants got off the ship, stayed in Bermuda. And now if you ever visit Bermuda, the name Pyramid, oh. there's Pyramid Township, Pierman Mor- the oldest business in Bermuda, Pyramid Mortuary, um, and Pearman Hill, Pearman, all of these Pearman things. So if you ever see me one day and I got a Darshiki on and I got a crown, you can assume I have confirmed I am a true descendant of King she- King Saul and Queen of Sheba. That's, uh, that's
1: amazing. It well, is. I, I guess it's hard to know from history uh, what possibly could have been in an African's mind when they right. were in that situation. I mean, if they knew what we know today, they they would have all stayed in Bermuda, right? Right. So out of the 74, which is crazy because this is all in the historical records.
0: The only thing we can't confirm is this part about one of the tribes were the descendants of King Saul and Queen of Sheba. All right. I'm going to roll with that, though. But the other part, uh, apparently in the records, it was a mother and her four, and her three kids decided to stay on the ship because she said she wanted to be with her husband. Uh, So we know that probably didn't work out, but that's how the 60, what was it? 70 stayed in Bermuda. And apparently my descendants were part of that group. And then somewhere my great grandfather moved to New York where my dad was born and then I was born. So I was born in New York. Uh, My parents somehow retired at an early age and have no idea where they came up with this brilliant idea when I was 13, they decide they want to become farmers and move to Florida. Oh, wow. Well, they're part of that group of people that, what do they call those? Birds something, people that left the East Coast and moved to Florida to retire. And my parents... uh, yeah, I think they tried to build a farm. There were cows, there were goats, there were ducks, there were horses. My mother's claim to fame at one point was she had a hundred chickens. I hated it because any of your your listeners that grew up on a farm, you know you have to work be now. I'm 13, so I'm in I'm in junior high all the way through high school. When you grew up on a farm, you have to work before you go to school. You have to get up really early. Yeah. Yes. So I kind of hated that idea. And by the time I got to high school, the only thing on my mind was how the heck do I get off this farm? So I began playing every sport my high school had. I played basketball. I played football. I ran track. I played baseball. So I didn't have to go home until it was dark messing around with that farm. And then when I graduate, the Marine Corps called me. Actually, I didn't. When I graduated, I went to join the Air Force, which is a whole nother story. But the Air Force recruiter wasn't in, but the Marines were working.
1: Yeah. I mean, you get paid for your efforts, right? It pays off. You make your own luck kind of thing through uh, effort. So there's a lot to explore there. Uh, I I want to talk about growing up in New York. Which which, uh, borough was it? Um, So we were I was born in Harlem, the Harlem River Apartments.
0: But. Um, um, I have pictures of my dad building i I think this had to have been his first house building our first house on long Island. okay so and 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 apparent from my older siblings took him ten years, so from ten took him ten years to build this house brick by brick in Long Island. so I grew up in a city called Roosevelt which is famous for a couple of things. That's where Dr. J was born and ah. grew up and boys to men. And as I recall, Eddie Murphy, I think. If I'm wrong, somebody will tell me Eddie Murphy didn't grow up here. I think anyway, so,
1: oh, uh, Howard Stern are all from Roosevelt, New that's, York. That's, that's quite the city. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the term I, I think you're, you were mentioning about the move to Florida uh, from New York is snowbirding. Snowbirding.
0: Yes. Yes. So my parents were part of that group of people that left New York and uh, retired in Florida.
1: Yeah. uh, And so you went from being a Long Island kid to a, a farm kid? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My parents, I think it was like 15 acres of nothing. I remember my parents didn't even tell us they were. I don't remember. I don't remember, but I don't remember my parents ever telling us we're moving. What I remember is thinking, me and my little brother, I'm 13, my little brother's 10, I remember thinking, we're taking a trip to Florida. I And then I remember, now I might have just told myself this story so much because I was traumatized. You know, we're all traumatized with something. I was traumatized when we left where I grew up. All my friends are there. We left New York, went to Florida. And I remember... Dr- My friends from Roosevelt will be hearing this for the first time. I love you guys. When we left, my parents, I don't remember them telling us. We just packed up, got in the car, drove to Florida. And I remember driving up through these woods where my dad had cleared out an opening where he built a shack at first where we then commenced building the rest of the house. And I remember thinking when I first realized we moved when my mother enrolled us in school. Wow when we got enrolled, I re- remember thinking, I think we now live in Florida and I remember I, I remember I don't want to be here because all my friends were in Florida yeah. and now because we didn't have Facebook and social media, this was in 69. So 69 I left Roosevelt. hey you guys, I miss all of you. It wasn't until probably from 69, 79, 89. Maybe 99, 30 years when social media popped up, I ran into most of those guys on Facebook and stuff
1: like that. And it was great. Yeah, that's, uh have you ever, did you ever ask your parents why they didn't tell you? You know, no. Now, it could simply be
0: that I could totally be wrong. I know how I'll check. I'll check my little brother. Oh, yeah. So you probably read in my profile, I was a brain, well, I still am a certified brain injury specialist. And I didn't realize I have had multiple concussions myself. My little brother often jokes with me about, I don't remember much stuff after 12. Mm. No, 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 no. Before 12 years of age. And the reason is I got hit in the eye with a baseball. I got hit in the eye with a baseball, got knocked out. So that was my first concussion. And, that probably caused the memory loss of some of those things back then, and then I could just be, you know, how your memory then starts making up stuff to deal with the trauma of moving from New York to or, or, or Roosevelt to Florida. But I love you guys in
1: Florida too. <laughs> well, if you played football, you probably you may have had a couple of oh, yes. from football. You I played football. You probably got some elbows to the head. A um, bunch, yes. Yes. Or head butts or head hitting the floor kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. So you you probably had who knows how many. I I know I, I, counted I had seven. I that's counted seven that I could clearly identify.
0: This was only now. This is only after I became a certified brain injury specialist when I knew how to diagnose myself. Uh, I counted seven. That's a lot. Mm, you may think that, but watch this. How many do you think you have had? Two. Now, let's let's do a little test. This is the way I would train. So as a brain injury specialist, one of the things I did was I trained the medical people in the military and in the VA on the West Coast on how to prevent, diagnose, and treat traumatic brain injuries. So here's the first thing I'm going to teach you. So you think you've had two. Now, in order to know how many you've had, you got to know what a concussion or a traumatic brain injury is. So let me tell you what it is. In order to have a brain injury, the first thing that has to happen is you got to hit your head on something. But we hit our head all the time, and we don't have a concussion. But that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Three things we're going to look for. How many times have you hit – there's three things. How many times have you hit your head and got knocked out? That's the first thing. How many times can you count? Uh, Knocked out where I was unconscious? Yes. And it doesn't matter how long. If your eyes rolled back and you were unconscious for a second, count it. How many times?
1: Uh, probably five.
0: You already have five right now. This is going to get worse, Paul. It's going to get worse now. Watch this. What? So here's how a, a medical person would diagnose a concussion. First, did you hit your head? Well, Yes. Oh, and make sure me cover that. So you hit your head five times and you felt you lost consciousness five times. Perfect. That's the first thing you look for. If you lost consciousness after a blow or jolt to the head or the body, that meets the criteria for a, at the minimum, concussion. Now, brain injuries come on multiple levels, but we'll stay with the lowest level right now, concussion. Now, it gets worse. That's just the getting, that's just the unconscious. How many times have you hit your head and as a result of hitting your head, you felt or you could not, oh no, you felt dazed, confused, or a little disoriented. Now don't count the times you got knocked out, but count the other times when you may have bumped your head and you felt that little buzzing feeling or, or you may have even saw stars. How many times would you count that? I More than five. Now we're now let's just estimate five. Now you've had 10. Now here's the, here's the last one. If you've ever so that that meets the criteria, a medical person will ask, have you ever hit your head? And as a result, you felt a little dazed, a little disoriented and confused. That meets the criteria for a concussion. A concussion is a traumatic brain injury. It just happens to be what's called the mild version. Now, here's the last one. How many times have you ever hit your head or your body? And as a result, you could not remember what happened. <laughs> now, that could be a lot of times because you can't remember. Right. So right. so we right now, the next time you go to your doctor, get them to the document. You've had at least 10 times you've had a brain So if you say, if you say brain injury, they're going to need to determine whether it was mild, moderate or severe. In most cases, 90% of the occasions when someone has a brain injury, it's a mild. That's where we hit our head. We're a little dazed, but we shake it off.
1: That still qualifies as a concussion. That qualifies as a concussion. Well, and you and I played football. You're a little bit older than me, but I mean- Equipment wasn't great in football, and so, yeah, yep. who knows how many times that happened in practice for game for games. And the reason I said yep. two, one of my concussions, I lost memory. I have no memory for an entire half of a football game, and the other one, Did I, you I kept I, playing. Uh, Did you keep playing for three plays until they realized I, I didn't know oh, what, where I was? Out. Yeah, it's actually a funny story. That if I'm on your podcast, I'll, I'll tell that story. No, tell us. Okay. Go ahead, share it. Uh, so second play of the game, cornerback slips. I'm I'm the free safety uh, running back, and I hit head on. He's shorter than me. I'm 6'3". He was probably 5'6". He hit helmet, crown of the helmet, into my chin. I don't remember anything after that until halftime. I'm on the bench. The other free safety is telling me that, uh, hey, yeah. do, you, do you remember what happened after that, that guy hit you? I said, I have no idea what happened. This is my first – recollection since that happened he goes an entire half has been played and he right. said you were so out of it you actually stood on the other team's sideline and you were <laughs> cheering for them and I'm like and, and I I was crying when I right. came to I was crying because I didn't know where I was right and then, then they finally let me off the hook I didn't do that I just kind of stood in the middle of the field without moving for three plays in a row and it took them to the third play to realize it and the, the reason they realized it I always line up 12 yards off the center. Right. Uh, And this tight end does a post right into me. And I didn't move except to to give him a bear hug. I didn't try to tackle him. I just tried to hold him. (laughs) And then like something's wrong with Gilman. We got to get him out of here.
0: Wow. Um, Yeah, those were the days when we didn't realize those are occasions when you need to come out. You should not be playing. That happens
1: in the NFL. You go into the concussion protocol. Well, and back then, Clint, uh, there was a doctor there, and he said, uh, how do you feel? And I described what I was feeling. And he basically told me to rub some dirt on it. He <laughs> didn't, didn't tell me anything. He's like, if, if you if you get nauseous, come back and see me. But otherwise, you, you, you should be fine. And then I told the coach my head hurt all week. But he wanted me to play the, the following Friday. And I'm like, "I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's right. My head hurts really bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's that's not unusual.
0: The the circumstances around me becoming a certified brain injury specialist for the Defense Health Agency involved the military realizing during the height of Afghanistan and Iraq that we had a lot of service members coming back with traumatic brain injuries, but we did not have enough medical people trained to treat them. So they created, or yeah, they created this thing called the Defense Health Agency, and then they brought on a bunch of people called regional education coordinators, which I was one. And our job was to go. One of the, our goals was to provide education, training, and resources to military medical personnel on how to diagnose, treat, and rehabilitate people. So that involved. Sometimes providing education to train them on what you just learned. In fact, that was the number one thing. Now we take a whole hour to train that, but that was the number one thing that we would we would teach is how do you diagnose, treat, and rehabilitate traumatic brain injuries. And then what should happen if you get a positive reading?
1: So Yeah, it's no, I'm, a better. I'm glad you're doing that work because it's, it's really important. I've had I've had a, a an army veteran on who suffered. Suffers from TBI and he, he doesn't remember much. Like his wife has to be around him all the time. His TBI is so bad.
0: That's, that's probably uh, so. TBIs come in three levels mild, which is the same thing as a concussion, mild, moderate, and severe. The moderate and severe are kind of like what you're describing there, where um, they don't just, in, in other words, most people that have a concussion that we've had most people fully recover on their own but then when you've had the moderate or severe eh you probably need some treatment and some help and there can be a
1: potential where you don't fully recover but you can be functional right right in fact in fact you see that flag behind me i do he made he made it wow that's yeah. awesome that's what he that's what he does for a living now yeah. Uh, all right. So favorite sport when you were in high school, avoiding farm work. So my favorite sport was basketball. I actually thought I was
0: really good. But by the time I got to the varsity, I realized I wasn't that good. But the best sport I was. Well, so I lettered in baseball, football and track and field. Um, I loved football. I have a couple of professional football players in my family, my older brother and his son. And then his other son could have been to the NFL if he decided to go that route. So football was in my background and I was pretty good. I was a wide receiver and a free safety. No, wait a minute. Was I a cornerback or free? I think I did both every now and then free safety and a cornerback, but I excelled in track and field. So I, I actually won. Well, I was ranked. I think I was the ranked, number one ranked pole vaulter in my school level 2A uh, my senior
1: year, and then placed second in the state in the pole vault. Nice. Yeah. yeah. The pole vault's a weird thing. Do you know the history of pole vaulting? I don't know anything about it. You know, I should, but I don't. Well, wait a minute. No, I'm going to have to say
0: no. I've never looked at any history. What? Give me the short version. I, I don't know it either. I, oh, I, I no. thought you might know. I, I, no. I'm going to have to look that up. I only know I got into the poll vote because my big brother, 10 years older than me, he poll voted in high school and I always thought it was cool. So when I got to Florida, I began poll voting in high school and yeah, I was pretty good. Graduated in 1975, and then 1975, 85, I mean, 75, 85, 95, 2005, 2015. So almost 40 years later, I decide I'm going to enter what's known as the seniors track and field circuit and the masters. So this is a track and field circuit for athletes for the seniors, it's over 50. So once you turn 50, you can run in this track and field circuit, just like you did in high school or college. It's just like the Olympic track and field circuit, all the same events you could run in it, but you only compete against athletes in your age bracket. So it would be 50 to 55, 56 to 60, 65 on like that. So I decide I need to find something to do to stay healthy and get in shape. So it had to be around 2013. I see this thing called Masters Track and Field, and they have povo. So I sign up for it, and my daughter sees me. It was either my daughter or granddaughter sees me signing up, and I remember them. My I think it was my granddaughter. I was like, Grandpa, what are you doing? I say I'm signing up for this track and field thing. What are you going to do? I'm going to povo. And then I think it was my daughter or granddaughter says, when's the last time you poll voted? Like 40 years ago? Is your insurance up to date, Grandpa? (laughs) (laughs) Here's the crazy part. I thought, of course, in high school, I was pretty good. I figured I could easily jump nine feet. And I didn't think so. I would have been in the 55 age group. I just could not imagine guys in this age could jump nine feet. So I show up at this track. It's the, it's the Pasadena California Relay, something like that. Pasadena Seniors track and field meet. I show up. I don't even have a poll. Mind you, the last time I poll voted, 40 years ago. I show up, and I'm just standing around with my arms crossed. And somebody says, hey, are you going to jump or just stand around and look? I said, I would if I had a poll. He said, hey, we got lots of poles." Somebody gave me a poll. I checked in. I won.
1: Oh. I jumped
0: nine feet. No, oh hold it. The first time I went down, I pulled a muscle, so I went down the you would know no ball, just a regular practice run, and I felt my leg tighten up. So I'm Ooh. thinking, dog, I'm only going to get one jump. So I tell the, the 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 referee guy, whatever you call those guys, hey, when the last guy goes out, I'm thinking that guy's because these guys are old. I'm thinking, you old, you're in the same age group. I'm thinking they're going to go out at like eight feet, seven feet. So they got to nine feet. The last guy went out. He said, okay, last guy just cleared. No, he went out at nine feet. All you have to do is clear nine feet. I said, no, put it up to nine feet, six inches. They put it up to, I think it was nine feet, six. I take one jump. I clear it and win. And you hadn't practiced in 40 years. That's right. But then I quit after that. (laughs) And I quit because my age group didn't have any really good jumpers in it. The guys above me. So I think I was in the 55. No, I was in the 50 to 55 age group. Those guys weren't that good. The guys in the 60, 65 and 65 to 70 they were jumping 13 and 14 feet. When I wow. saw that, I but these were like guys that pole-voted in college and never stopped. They kept jumping over the next 30, 40 years. But I realized that's too dangerous. I'm not doing that. So I switched to sprints. Okay. I switched to running the 100 and the 200 and the 50. And you're still doing that now? Yeah, yeah. Wow. In fact, uh, I qualified for All-American in the 50 just U.S. All-American last well two weeks ago in the last meet that I ran in. Wow, that's awesome! I know. Yeah, I use so I use the track and field as a way to for, for exercise. Some people run marathons, some people go to the gym. I train for track and field.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And if awesome.
0: you were a free safety, you were probably a sprinter in high school too.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I had good lateral movement and I had good instincts, but was not not a sprinter. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. All right. So let's talk about, uh, Marine Corps. You were going to join the air force, but the guy wasn't there. Marines right. were there mm-hmm. and you just, did you have any idea what you were getting into? No. In fact, it, this is, this is,
0: so I, I go down to the air force office thinking I'm going to be a pilot. Mind you, I'm a high school senior. So obviously I know people say you have a doctorate degree. You was really stupid back then. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I got to figure out how to get off this farm and what I'm going to do. So I'm going to, I want to fly jets. So I'm going to go. So I go to the Air Force. Air Force recruit is not in. I'm walking back, going to go home, um, get the bus. No, I had a car, get in the car and go home. But I pass by the Marine recruiter's office and he's sitting behind his desk looking out the window where he sees me and he does that two finger thing. Hey, where you get his eye contact. I made three mistakes that day. first mistake was I made eye contact with them. When I made eye contact with them, he kind of gestured to come here. So I went around to the door. I looked in, I said, yes, sir. He said, where are you going, son? I said, well, I was trying to go in the Air Force to be a no, to go in the Air Force. He said, what do you want to do that for? I said, I want to be a pilot. He said, we need pilots in the Marine Corps. My eyes got big. And I and he points behind him on the wall. Now, any any service members, were you ever in the service? I was in the army. Oh, you're you you are going to relate to this. So he points to this. The more the wall behind him, there is a billboard of an F four Phantom. That's the old Vietnam jet. He has the billboard that's supposed to be out on a highway. By coincidence, he has it on the wall behind him. He points at it. And on the side of it, it says Marines. Now you know what the Marine Corps is. I'm just 18 years old, right? out. I ain't even out of high school. I'm still in high school. So it says Marines. I said, wow. He said, yeah, come on in here. Let's take this little test. Now, only the Army and the Marine Corps do that little test. That's the little test where they put us in the little back room in the recruiting station and make us take this 15-question test. The reason they make us take it because they got to make sure we can pass the real test. For some reason, the Air Force and the Navy, they don't do that. They just send you <laughs> down APs and take the test. So you put me in a little room, I passed, apparently I passed the test because he says, great, we're gonna take you down tomorrow and swear you in. I'm thinking, wow, it was that easy. So. <laughs> Now, I know you're laughing because you're thinking, boy, you're stupid. <laughs> so, so I go to AFES. We do the test. They don't call it APs anymore. I think they call it MEPS. Yeah. I do the, the testing everything. I get everything. I do the physical. I'm in the, the Marine little section where they're doing your paperwork. When I ask, hey, one of the, one of the Marines doing the paperwork, you might have been a sergeant. I said, hey, sergeant, when am I going to learn what jets I'm going to fly? The whole <laughs> office stops and looks at me, they're looking at me like, and I could think something ain't right. They're looking at me like, what the heck is wrong with you? You're not going to be a pilot. You're going in the infantry. So so, so the, the the guy in charge come over and said, what are you talking about? Now I said, my recruiter told me I could be a pilot. He didn't say that. What the recruiter said was, we need pilots. <laughs> I got suckered into thinking I'm gonna be a pilot. So they, so the, the guys in the office, they were cool. They said, when your recruiter picks you up, just ask him. Okay, so the recruiter picks me up, I'm in the car going home. He, so I said, hey, oh, the, uh, the guy, I don't remember the guy's name, but he was a staff sergeant. I, I said, staff sergeant, so uh, when am I gonna learn what, what, where I'm gonna go and what kind of jets I'm gonna fly? He says, when you get to boot camp, just ask your drill instructors. (laughs) Now, see, the only people that will laugh are service members. (laughs) Civilians don't get that. So I get to boot camp. Now, mind you, I get to boot camp. I'm still thinking I'm going to be a pilot because nothing told me I'm not yet. I go all the way through boot camp. Now, in the Marine Corps, your last week might have been the last three or four days. They give you your orders where you get to see where you're going. So they hand out the orders, I open up my orders. My orders, now I'm thinking it's gonna say report to some kind of flight school. (laughs) My orders say report to Camp Pendleton for infantry training school. Now I know what the infantry is. I like come to attention and I yell, sir! Recruit request to speak to the senior drill instructor. I kind of say it in a bad attitude, with a bad tone. So all the drill instructors attack me. Oh, how do you think you're talking? So the senior drill instructor says, what? I said, sir, the the recruits, recruiter told him he could be a pilot. The drill instructors attack me again. A pilot, you ain't even smart enough. You just barely got out of high school. You're stupid. You just dumb. The senior drill instructor says, stop. So they all stop. The senior drill instructor was named Staff Sergeant Marinco. He was the coolest guy I ever seen, which our senior drill instructors or senior drill sergeants always are. Mm. And the way I remember it, he does something, uh, which then makes me think I'm going to be a pilot. And then after he does whatever he does, I think he scratched out my orders and wrote in them, pilot. And after he does that, I'm like, thank you, sir. He says, so now... Pile that stack of sea bags over there and then pile it back. That's how I became a pilot. Pilot (laughs) there to pilot there. After about 20 or 30 minutes of doing that, I realized I am not going to be a pilot. And for the next 31 years, the Marine Corps just pissed me off one year at a time because they never let me be a pilot. But I know you didn't see this. I did get to drive a submarine. Really? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first job, uh, I was one of those rare Marines that after I completed infantry training, I didn't go directly to an infantry platoon where you normally would go. I went on what's called Marine security guard duty. So I mm. went to a naval, sh- well, first I had to go to school for this, to be a security guard for nuclear weapons. So I mm. went to a naval ship got to wear dress blue uniform white belt carry 45 and on all naval ships with nuclear weapons there is a marine detachment that guards the nukes so I got to do that my first uh two years in the marine Corps then they then they sent me to
1: an infantry platoon so you you were an imp, trained infantry and you ended up being on a Saab that you didn't see oh, that. So that's, oh, hold on. That's how I wanted
0: to, to. No, let's back up. How I got on the sub. The so I was so the nuclear weapon ship I was on was called a submarine tender. It's not a submarine. It's a ship that holds the nuclear weapons that are resupplied to oh, the submarine. submarine. Oh, okay. So as a guard, they would always let the new marine guards go down with one of the submarines when they went on a maneuver. So I got to go down on, and I don't, this was 1975. I don't even remember what the name of those submarines were. I think they were, or the nukes were Polaris missiles. I think it was a Polaris nuclear submarine. So I got to go down and the the chief of the boat, the, the head enlisted guy, they, they brought me into the place where you drive the ship and he put, the submarines got two steering wheels, but you didn't know that. I didn't. One steer wheel that makes it go left and right. Now, this was in 75. And then another one that makes it go up and down. He sat me behind the one that makes it go up and down, put his hand on the back of my head, because remember only 18. And he said, keep this needle right here in the middle so we didn't go up or down or anything. And he let me sit there for like five or 10 minutes driving the submarine. That's pretty cool. It was. So I spent, I think it was two
1: days, on that submarine, it was another traumatizing event. <laughs> yeah, I my son, who's 22, said he, he's thinking about maybe doing nuclear subs, and I'm like, uh, you, you need to think long and hard about that. That is a tough life,
0: yes, yes, yes. Wow,
1: very tough life. Yeah, the, the, the navy offered him a bunch of money out of high school for his ASVAB score, absolutely. And- yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm like, I mean, they're offering that much money because a lot of people don't want to do that kind of work. Yeah, they get in it, and then, but the good thing is, you get in it, you got skills. You got skills, you and you get, get and you have friends for life.
0: Right, right, right. All right, so for those of us, those of us that go into the infantry,
1: we ain't got no skills. We got to go get a PhD to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you you got to be a regular infantryman. How, how long were you uh, an infantryman? So in the Marine Corps, uh, once as you progress up the rank structure,
0: uh, um, so I was a sergeant in the infantry as a platoon so, Well, first I was a guide, then I became a platoon sergeant, and that lasted for about a year. Then I actually got promoted to E-6. Normally, as an E-6, you would then be officially a platoon sergeant in an infantry platoon, but I wound up on recruiting duty. <laughs> Mm. so they sent me on recruiting duty and you can imagine my first goal I was looking for that first kid talking about he wanted to be a pilot <laughs> so I spent five years on recruiting duty uh, and then I left recruiting duty and went to Okinawa oh then I was too senior to be directly in a platoon so now I'm working in operations. so in the Marine Corps uh after like E-5, E-6, especially E-7, you won't be directly in a platoon. You'll be in an operations section where you oversee the operations of a operations department. And then for the next 30 years, I went from E-6 up to E-9 uh, and then ran the operations departments for some of the Marine Corps largest units. So when I eventually retired, I had been an operations chief for the largest Marine Corps operational commands, Headquarters Marine Force Reserves and uh, the, the the Marine Corps Expeditionary Force. I was one of the ops chiefs as part of that.
1: Yeah, that's not, you live the life of an operator. That's
0: well, you hold that thought. Yeah, that can yeah, be staff con-
1: operator, staff operator. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes, staff yeah. operator. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, I, I didn't mean uh, operator as in you were you were out in the picking down doors and throwing yeah, throwing yeah. grenades, right. right? I didn't mean yeah. operator that way. Uh, yeah. So, why did you stay in the Marine Corps for thirty-one years? What was it about the Marine Corps?
0: <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I humorously see say, say I did like it, but I tried to get out. So my first four years. I was going to get out, and then they gave me $6,000 to re-enlist. You know how that works. <laughs> so I took the $6,000, re-enlisted. My next, so that I re-enlisted for six years. That took me to like, whatever, 10, 12 years, and then I'm getting out. And at this point, I now have my bachelor's degree. So I think I can do other stuff. I'm getting out. Then he decided to give me $16,000 to re-enlist. Now, mind you, I'm in the infantry. They're paying us to stay in the infantry. So they now give me $16,000 to re-enlist again. Plus I had an incentive, I had a wife and a child now. So eh, that's not that easy. And and the $16,000 back in 1970, I mean, 85, that was pretty good. But now that contract ends And I'm kind of at like 18. No, I'm at 16 years, but I'm still planning on getting out. I have my master's degree. I'm actually working on this first doctorate degree, and I'm gonna get out. And then the first Gulf War breaks out. Mm. And I actually am out. I actually forgot. I out, I'm out, I'm on terminal leave. I got an afro, I got a beard, I done turned my uniforms into the goodwill. When I get this phone call, I was in E7. I get this phone call, Gunny, you've been stop-lost. You know that term, right? Oh, yeah. I didn't know what it was. Now, they're using it on me in 91 when the first Gulf War breaks out. You've been stop-lost. What does that mean? You have to come back on active duty. Nah, you crazy. I'm out. I got a beard. I'm already out. I'm I'm out. Said, no, the government has stop-lost everyone, and you have to report, and I hang up. So now I get this major call me back. Gunny Pearman, this is major so-and-so. I need to talk to you. So he uses the major voice and he convinces me that this is for real. And he tells me, you have to report to an organization called Fifth MEB. That's that armada of ships that's deploying out of San Diego. So by that time, all the ground forces for the first Gulf War uh iraqi what was that iraqi freedom and the other one they had already left so the army was already gone the marine corps was gone on the ground and then the the dod decides we're going to do this at this fake amphibious assault but they need more people where are they going to get those more people they're going to stop loss them call them out of the reserves and they told this is Monday. this is I think it was a Friday night. He says Wednesday, you have to report to Naval Station San Diego for duty on the USS Tawa. What? Yeah, you're going to the you're going to Iraq. Or where, where do we go? Kuwait. Kuwait and Persian Gulf. Yeah. Yes. So that was the end of being out. So I get back. I, I leave. Um we're going. We do the first, we do, we do. Iraqi Freedom and then there were two 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 combat operations. I don't remember what they were. Iraqi
1: Freedom, what's the other one? Well, no, uh back then in 1991, it was Desert uh Strike oh. and Desert Storm. Yeah, no, Desert Shield and Shield. Desert Storm. Shield and Storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did
0: both of those and then on the way back, many people don't remember this after The Army and the Marine, after everybody had left Kuwait, after it was over, those of us on the the ship with Fifth Mep, we were still out there. Mm. And then as we were heading back, the Bangladesh flood hit. Typhoon. There was that typhoon that hit Bangladesh, killing 10,000 people. So this is the hallmark of the Marine Corps. We left as a combat operation. Heading back, we got diverted as a humanitarian operation, had to go to Bangladesh for, I think, another four, five, six months to help the Bangladeshians in the flood. So that got us the humanitarian. So we got the combat ribbon from from Desert Shield and Desert Storm and then the humanitarian ribbon when, when we went to help them. So then when we came back, you may remember we, the military kind of felt, we are such a powerful armed services, we don't need all these people. So they started downsizing. The Army and the Air Force and the Navy, you guys gave that 15 year retirement. That's when that started. The Marine Corps, no, the Marine Corps gave a lump sum. So when I got back, we heard, hey, they're gonna give people, first we thought, the 15-year retirement. Well, heck, I got 16, 17 years. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll stick around a little longer and see if I can get a 15-year retirement. No, the Marine Corps says, we'll give you a lump sum. So they paid me six, first 6000 then 16000 to stay in. And now they paid me $98,000 to get out. So I took the 98000 got out. And then about two months after I got out, Marine Corps then realizes we made a mistake. We let out a lot of people that were going to be the next E-8s and E-9s where the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, they put those you guys in the 15 year retirement. So they still had you. Yep. They could call you back. But the Marine Corps let us out. And the way they kind of compensated for it was they called us and gave us a good deal to come in the reserves. So they asked us to come in the reserves. So they had that pool. And then in the reserves, I picked up E9 and then I put in my retirement and it got canceled. (laughs) Yeah, I put my retirement in on a Friday night. I come in Monday. Hey, Master Guns, Sergeant Major needs to see you. I'm thinking they want to talk to me about my retirement. No, they want to talk to me about you're getting deployed to Afghanistan. Mm. What are you talking about? I'm trying to retire. I got 31 years in. 30 years. At the, oh, it was 29 years at that time. 29. So retirement got canceled. That was be, that was for the, the war on terrorism. So I got my retirement kind of kanked put me on active duty, had to do two more years, which then took me to 31 years, 31 in six months. Did you
1: go over to uh, Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a little while. Yeah, Uh, there's a lot to unpack in there. So stop loss, until you've been stop loss, you you didn't realize that's what you signed when you were 18. And when you extended, you signed it again. That language is all in there. Uh, and they can do that. And I think the the document I signed uh, says, and they would not do this because I, they don't they don't need a fifty four year old uh, mm-hmm. infantry guy because that's what I I was for uh, a good chunk of my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's language that says that they can pull you back. They can pull right. me back. You could be right. eighty seven years old, yeah, and, and they could pull you back. Absolutely. Uh, if it got if it now, got. And minus. I believe I actually
0: think. So this was in ninety one. I believe I was probably part of the first group of people that ever got stop-loss because prior to that, there was no reason to stop-loss. Vietnam was, so I joined in 75 at the end of Vietnam. So between Vietnam and and, and the first Gulf, there was no reason to stop-loss. I actually think I may be one of the first people they stop-loss when they use that rule because I had never
1: heard of it. Yeah, they did it again with uh, OEF and yeah. well, the, the Global War right. on Terrorism. They, they use it a lot. Right. Uh, yeah, that's uh, and, and by the way, people were not happy about it. They were a month away from getting out and, and they're like, sorry, you can't get out. Now, I, I actually didn't complain.
0: And the reason was this. I knew the reason once they explained to me why me, it was because my So I was a reservist at that time, and I was the backup of the operations chief for the largest Marine Corps command, which is a myth. I was kind of like his backup, and they told me his wife was in an accident, and they had to bring him back to the United States, and if they have to bring him back, we need somebody that can go right now, and that's you. Okay, I'm not gonna complain. I was that guy that had to go, so I didn't I didn't complain. But I, I, I was only going for a little while, then I wound up in New Orleans to do my last year and a half in retirement, but just in time for Hurricane Katrina. Mm. So I, I got to New Orleans, I think two or three months, and then had to live through Katrina. And
1: where'd my you,
0: last go ahead. Where'd you live in New Orleans? Um, well. Because I was living, I was in the military and not living in the barracks. I lived in a hotel <laughs> for 18 wow. months in a hotel, uh, in a place called Metairie, Metairie. Yep. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, uh, yeah. So this is a crazy story. So when Hurricane Katrina hit, we we are the headquarters. For the Marine Corps Reserves, the entire Marine Corps Reserves, where the headquarters, we can't stay for the hurricane. So we evacuate to Texas. Mm. We get to Texas and find out that FEMA was paying people that were evacuated. A lot of money. Some of us collected that money and I thought, well, heck, I like it here in Texas. I'm going to just retire right here in Texas. So I took my FEMA money and tried to buy a house right there. Well, bought a house right there in Texas Uh, until the command decides, okay, we're going back to New Orleans now because the water had subsided and things were okay. So then we went back to New Orleans and my last official official op because I was an operations chief the last official thing I did was I was the I put together the Marine Corps component of cleaning up New Orleans so when we got back the city was still a mess there were very few people there but the Marines are back and there's like I think like 800 of us. Uh, in this headquarters command, but they're mostly, mostly high rank because we're a command. We're a three-star general command, so mostly high-ranking people. So we come back, and the commander says that uh, we should do something to help the city. We're in good shape. We're still getting paid, and we occupy the city. What can we do? I came up with the brilliant idea. Let's help clean it up. So I put together an operation where. We would then use the military personnel to clean up sections of New Orleans, wrote up an operation plan, got the people together, got all the equipment, put it together. And then for the next, I think it took us 30 or 60 days, we helped clean up New Orleans. And then you would think I would be the one on the news kind of talking about how the Marine Corps did this. No, the general took all the credit. (laughs) Which he should. He's the general. (laughs) He does outrank you. He does outrank me. Absolutely. Did you get your PhD while you were still in? So I actually have two. I got one while I was on active duty, um, a doctorate in organization development and psychology. And then once I got out, uh, I realized that I really was interested in health. When my parents got older and I realized they didn't really do a lot of healthy things. And I knew enough about health then to know, boy, if they knew more about health, they could have lived an extra five, 10 years. And then I decided, I want to study health. I I initially thought I was going to go to medical school. That lasted about 10 seconds. I Googled medical school and realized, I'm like 55 years old. I'm too old to go to medical school. This ain't going to work. But then I thought, okay, I'll go to go back and get another doctorate in health psychology. And that's what I pursued. So I uh, got a what's called a PsyD. It's a doctor of psychology with a focus on health and wellness from the University of Arizona Global Campus.
1: I mean, you're you're obviously highly educated. Uh, Is that something you uh, just who you are as a person or or your parents a big influence? Or did you have other influences that said you really, education is very, very important. And so having two doctorates is is better than having one doctorate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's interesting that I don't recall ever. Now, my family, my siblings, my brothers and sisters, they're going to hear this. I Now, remember, I had this concussion, so I may just don't remember. But I don't ever remember my mom or dad ever talking to me about college when I was in high school. Mm. Never. I don't, and, and I think I recall my older brother because he graduated from college and my sister went to college. My dad, on the other hand, he was extremely successful but he was, a, he was a, he drove the subway train before he retired in New York and my mother was in the medical field. I think she was like a nurse's aide. So they were fairly successful but never talked to me about college but I've always been the curious person. I remember wanting to learn about so many different things. But my focus in high school, I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player Till I got to the varsity, realized you ain't that good. Then I got to, I I already knew I'm not going to the NFL. And then I learned later, I didn't think I was going to go to the NFL because I didn't think I was big enough. I was only like 145, 60 pounds. But then I learned my nephew told me this. Who got to the NFL. He said when he graduated from high school, he was 100, when he went to college, he was 145 pounds. Nobody ever talked to me about that stuff. But then I went in the Marine Corps. And then, as you know, in the military, you're constantly learning. And especially in my MOS, every time I picked up a new rank, I had to now learn the stuff to be ready for that to to operate at that rank. And I did multiple other things. I wasn't only in the infantry. I was a recruiter, had to go to school for that. I was a drill instructor, had to go to school for that. I then became a nuclear biological chemical specialist, had to go to army school. So they sent me to the army chemical defense training school in Fort Huachuca to learn how to do that. Then I be was an anti-terrorist force protection specialist, had to go to school to do that. So I think just by by my natural tendency throughout the Marine Corps, which was my first 30 years, I constantly was in a learning mode. So at the point when I got bored, um, I thought, I, I'm just gonna go to, oh, let's, let's back up. My first duty station was in Spain on that ship, the nuclear submarine supply ship. That's when I took my first college class. Mm. It was psychology. 1975, took my first college class. 1975, didn't get my first degree until 1988. That's 11 years later. But it was an associate. took me 11 years to get a two-year degree. Why? I'm in the military. And then it just kept going. Once I got those first two, got that associate's degree, I kind of liked learning, and I just stayed in school for the next. I, I can't, I can't remember a time from 1975 until 2007. I can't remember a time when I
1: was not in some kind of college class. Wow. Uh, how how do college classes work when you're in the military like that? Um, obviously, with the Internet, it, it's become a lot easier. Did you get a box of books kind of thing and you'd have to mail, physically so mail? Test in the results? beginning? Yeah. In the beginning, that's how it worked. So when I took that
0: class in Spain, the first college class, it was from the it was from the University of Maryland. Extension, I think they called it Extension Course. What that meant was you got a box of books. (laughs) That's exactly what it was. You got a box of books showed up. You studied the books. You took the test, sent it back. So that went on for maybe a couple of years. And then I wound up in Japan where they had the classes. So when I wound up in Okinawa, you could literally go to the class on the military base and take the class. And that was how I took most of my next series of classes um, uh, until I wound up in the reserves. And then I was able to actually go to, well, actually, no, on recruiting duty. When mm-hmm. I wound up on recruiting duty, I was a pretty good recruiter. So I went to college full time on, re- on recruiting duty. That's a great I deal. To, I went actually to the school. I went to the university. Where would I go? I went to you not, where did I go to college in Texas or, or in, in Can- oh, University of Kansas. Um, I went to, went to the, the, the school, Rockhurst, that's what it was. I went to Rockhurst University, went to school until the sergeant major found out that this guy's a recruiter. When's he recruiting if he's in school full time? I don't understand what the problem was. I'm making quota. Everybody's happy. Why can't I go to school? because that ain't the way we do it in the Marine Corps. So he kind of kanked that idea. and uh, 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 But then I was able to go part-time then. So, yeah. And then for the next 20 years, while I was either on active duty or in, in the reserves,
1: I was just in school. Tell the story of uh, you being on active duty, uh, but you were playing basketball. You, where'd you hear that story? He told me when, when we first chatted. Oh. So, so my first duty, that road to Spain.
0: That was my first duty station. Um, there was this program, and I somehow remember it as a human relations program where they put together a group of basketball players from Europe. And as I recall, they took players from the army, from the Air Force, on this team, from the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, and the Navy. And what we did was travel around Europe playing foreign countries. It was amazing until the Sergeant Major found out that this Marine, <laughs> he will see he, he plays basketball. He takes that. So, so yeah, for like six, maybe four to six months, the command, the ship, gave me permission to travel and do this basketball thing. And then at some point it was found out that I was doing this. And some sergeant major said, That's not what the Marine Corps, you know, that's how Sergeant Majors are. That's what their job. Well, command for the Army command sergeant major. Right. So the right, command sergeant major, Marine Corps, we just call them Sergeant Majors. So apparently he kind of figured out, yeah, I'm just a young Lance Corporal in court E3 and E four. Uh-uh. That's not what we're paying you to do. There's, there's no
1: sergeant major on earth that uh, would tolerate that. Right. So, <laughs> but the crazy
0: part was, I don't even remember the country. Is there a country called Rambidia? For some reason, I have that in my mind. One of the countries offered me a contract to play for the country. <laughs> I wanted to take it. I'm just a young 18, 19 year old not real smart. Cause man, I thought I was going to be a pilot in the first place. Infantry man until the coach who I think was like a senior enlisted guy. He's probably E78. He kind of pulled me to the side, stupid. You can't just quit the service and go play for them. You you can't, that you can't do that. And we got back on the plane, flew back to Spain, or got on the bus, flew, drove back to Spain. And that was the end of my basketball. Well, that was the end of my aspirations of, ever going anywhere with basketball, but I did continue playing a little bit throughout the next maybe four or five years in the Marine Corps. And that was fun.
1: Yeah. I was going to say it was fun while it lasted for sure.
0: And then I actually played football too. I keep forgetting about that. I was a quarterback. Oh yeah. I was a quarterback for a team I played with in San, at San and when I got back to San Diego.
1: Was it like a, uh, a military league? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know how the bases have teams? Yeah. 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 Yeah, It was a base
0: team. Yeah.
1: That's cool. All right. Uh, This is a question I usually ask towards the end. It's meant to be fun. It's also meant to be a little more revealing than a typical conversation uh, would get to. Uh, Imagine you're a talk show host, but it's one time only. You get to invite whoever you want. These people can be alive or dead. They can be famous or not famous. They can be family members, friends, strangers, uh you can your show can be about pure uh enjoyment it can be thought-provoking it can be whatever you want it to be you get to invite a male and you're going to interview these folks a male a female a musical act and a comedian who are your guests so the male
0: i know exactly who i'm inviting i get this all the time you look like Obama. <laughs> Did you get it? Say that. So I have to correct people and tell them I do not look like Obama. Obama looks like me. And President Obama or Michelle, if you're hearing this, you need to tell Barack to stop looking like me. <laughs>
1: But Barack's your guy. You're bringing him Oh, up. yeah.
0: Barack and Michelle both. I'd invite them all. Because I think they're cool. And I'd love to learn some stuff from
1: them. I, I think they would be a great, great interview. So uh, is that your male and female? Yes. OK. All right. What about music?
0: Music? I'd like to call back James Brown. Oh, Bring him back to life and bring James Brown on the show. Let's interview James Brown. And I would ask a whole different line of questions, not anything related to music. Tell me how you were so successful. All this, you, know, you know, I had the blog talk radio show. The show was actually titled Success Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed people, but it was the general was about success. Right and, right, and, right. and how did you achieve your goals? So I would bring James. I'd love to interview James Brown.
1: And what was the last one? Last one's comedian. Doesn't have to be stand up. It could be somebody, a funny person in movies, TV, that kind of thing. A funny person.
0: Oh. Who's the funniest? I don't know, but I would would simply do this. I would figure out who is the funniest comedian because I know the type of stuff I would want to ask. I would find out who was the funniest
1: person on the planet. Who is that guy? Who is it? Who do you think? Well, it, these people can are being brought back to life potentially, too. Yeah. So, like prior, prior to be your answer. Let me
0: think. I don't know. Uh, I can name a couple of people. Uh, how about Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock? Um, who's the little short guy? Kevin Hart. Kevin, yeah, I was got kind of a bad Kevin. I'm joking, Kevin Hart. But then also, how about remember the show where the the woman her she was married to the the Spanish guy, no Puerto Rican guy. Uh, yes, you do. We all know the show when we were growing up. I love Lucy. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, goodness. yeah. I would like, yeah, inter- let's interview. I love Lucy. What was her husband's name?
1: Oh, uh, De- Desi Arnez, I think. But I think she was the show, right? She was definitely the show. She was Lucy. Uh, yeah. Lucio I Ball. love
0: Lucy. Um, well, who else? Uh, hmm. No, Lucille Ball was hilarious. Lucille Ball.
1: Yeah. 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 All right, cool. Well, um, Red Skelton, Red Skelton, too. Yes. Yeah. Now, Clint, you're, you're dating yourself with Red Skelton. Well, yeah, I'm visualizing
0: back when I was growing up, when we only had two or three channels, you had to
1: watch these guys. I thought they were hilarious. You you and I, you and I were the remote control for our parents, right? Right, right. Mm. All right, let's end with, uh, tell me a little bit about your family.
0: I have a great family. Uh, I often joke that we kind of had like the, the typical Huxtable family. My mom and dad were married for 67 years. Wow, wow. Yes. Um, uh, Now, strangely enough, though, I have two sets of siblings. So apparently my mom and dad had, had two oldest, had my two sisters and an older brother, and then they took a break for about 10 years, and then had me and my little brother. So by the time I was growing up, I already had, by the time I got to like 10 years old, I had an older brother that was this famous professional or well, famous football player in high school. And then, and then college, and then went to the pros and then the Canadian Football League. Um, but then when we moved to Florida, it was only me and my little brother. My other siblings were already grown and gone um, still today. Uh, I love those guys. My oldest sister has already passed, um, and I have two brothers left, and a big sister. I always call them big sisters. My big sister and my big brother. Uh, and then, strangely enough, well, we don't want to talk about that. And then, and then, um, uh, I have relatives all over the place, um, close relatives. Uh, and then when my mom and dad passed away when my mom passed away she left as i recall in her obituary 22 grandchildren mm. no and 22 great grandchildren wow yeah yeah wow so we have a an amazing family of unbelievably successful people uh, like I mentioned, I have a uh, my older brother got to the NFL. He has a son that got to the NFL. Now's a professor at Prince Snow at Stanford. I have another nephew that is he he raises thoroughbred horses. This is just amazing. And then I have nieces that do amazing things around the world. I have nieces that are in politics down in Florida. Um, in other words, I have family members doing all kind of amazing – fa- the type of family that if you could choose a family, you'd want to choose my family. <laughs> uh, you, <laughs> you know, every now and then you have family members like, oh, God, is he in our family? But in my family, you would want to choose
1: my family and cousins you, also. Do, do you remember who you connected me to? He's going to be on the podcast next week. That's my – oh, I didn't even – I forgot about that nephew. Nephews that are famous pilots
0: in the army. That's the one, right?
1: Yep.
0: Yeah. Awesome.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, He's going to be on uh, Monday.
0: Yeah. I have so many awesome nieces and nephews. I forget about like the one that is like crazy. Awesome. So
1: yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. Well, Clint, I appreciate you doing this. I really do. I'm glad Rich introduced us. Uh, and I will gladly put on, uh, all of your interesting accomplished family members on this podcast
0: (laughs) awesome i appreciate that paul man it was a pleasure hanging out on your show now i see how i think it was you that said this is kind of therapeutic yeah i can get that maybe i need a lot of therapy (laughs) that's awesome that's i I love the concept that was you that mentioned that to me right oh yeah the show could be therapeutic because it just gets you get to share your stories and stuff yeah yeah, I, I can't wait to hear what my nephew has to say next.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, he's, he's going to be good, too. I can't wait to talk to him, too. But I really appreciate talking to you. Appreciate what you're doing, especially uh, helping folks with mental health. That's obviously very important, given what we went through since 9-11. And that obviously, we still have guys that need help.
0: Awesome, Paul. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. I'm grateful.
1: If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us
1: at scodopodcast.com.